Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. Today I'm joined by David Zendel, who is a lecturer at York St. John University. He's a lecturer in computer science and has recently published uh, the, the much discussed loot box uh, piece of research. So I'm going to start with, would you like to talk about your research, David? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, thank you very much for having me on uh, to start off with. Uh, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so um, loot boxes are interesting. Um, as your viewers may be aware, they're these items that you can buy in video games. But when you buy the item with your real world money, uh, you don't know what you're getting. The loot box contains randomized contents mm. in some way. Um, and lots of people have been saying, oh, they look a bit like gambling. <laughs> and, and there's good reasons to think they look a bit like gambling because you're often staking real-world cash now on the uncertain hope of getting some valuable reward in the future, uh, which is uh, not too far away from a roulette wheel. And lots of people have been saying, that looks like gambling. Uh, maybe it harms people like gambling. And in fact, a couple of countries have uh, put legislation into place that says, actually, that's so similar to gambling, it just is gambling, uh, and we're going to ban it and make it illegal. Um, but up to now, even though loads of people have been saying, oh, maybe loot boxes are like gambling, maybe they're harmful, um, nobody has done a piece of research where they just sort of look at some gamers and find out if loot boxes and spending on loot boxes is linked to gambling-related harm, like problem gambling. Uh, so that's what we did. We got uh, yeah. about 7,400 people on Reddit to answer a survey um, where they we asked them a bunch of questions, including uh, how much do you spend on loot boxes? And we took a standard measure of their uh, problem gambling severity via something called the uh, problem gambling severity index. Um, and we found that they correlated. There was a link between them. Uh, the more people were spending on loot boxes, uh, the more severe their problem gambling severity was. Um, mm-hmm. And we interpret this as meaning one of two things. Now, um, lots of people have been saying, oh, um, loot boxes, they might provide a gateway to problem gambling amongst gamers. They might literally cause people to become problem gamblers. Loot boxes is so similar to gambling. You get used to gambling in the loot box, and then you go out into the real world and you start problem gambling for real. Um, mm-hmm. It might show that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a correlational study. So showing a direction of causation is like super sketchy and really tricky from this. Like yeah, if I was yeah. saying, oh, it's, it's definitely causal in that direction, uh, you probably have a, a good right to mistrust me. Uh, there's another thing that it might say as well, which isn't that loot boxes cause problem gambling. It might be that problem gambling causes loot box spending. So uh, the worse your problem gambling is, the more you're spending on loot boxes. And there's a good reason to think that that might be the case as well, because like, as loads of people have been pointing out, loot boxes look a heck of a lot like gambling, and problem gambling is characterized by an uncontrolled, disordered, excessive spending on gambling activities. And that, mm-hmm. is, right? Um, but the key thing here, and one of the really interesting things about this link, is that whichever way round it goes, it's still not terrific. Uh, like, so in one case, loot boxes are literally causing problem gambling. And if that's true, like, that's just awful. I mean, that's just, just awful. Uh, but the other way around, it's still not great because it means that games companies are um, essentially profiting from problem gambling amongst their customers. And um, loot boxes make shocking amounts of money every year. Uh, I was shocked when I read the figures. Um, and I kept on, when we were writing the paper, I kept on going back to it and being like, oh, damn, I've got that wrong. That can't be right. That must be yeah. how much games <laughs> make. Like, it's, it's unimaginable. It's $30 billion a year, up to $30 billion a year, uh, which is just, I mean, I mean, it's... it's Huge amounts of money. Um, <laughs> yeah, disgustingly huge, isn't it? Disgustingly <laughs> huge. Uh, and so we basically said, well, maybe loot box spending causes problem gambling, or maybe problem gamblers just spend more on loot boxes. But in either case, it doesn't look great for society. And probably you should think about regulating it if you're the sort of body who regulates uh, gambling-related stuff. Uh, and yeah. that's the paper. Yeah. 
Yes, and and well, what I will say is is in terms of um, people listening, a I did love the the name of the index because you know we we do this thing in research, don't we? We say it exactly as it is. Yes, exactly. I like it. You you know what it does. It's like a real (laughs) Dulux um, questionnaire, isn't it? Yeah. And then uh, um, I think the interesting thing, and I'm, I'm just wondering how many people will understand this. So I'm aware of um, uh, uh, an organisation called Parent Zone that have done a similar kind of, they've tried to find out what it's like for younger people because uh, your research is done with adults. Yeah. Um, and this is what we were discussing earlier is how, right. how we then extrapolate from one piece of research and go to another. And, and here we have, you know, a correlation. This is what yeah. we've just been talking about before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the correlation from adult research doesn't always come down and, and meet its match, if you like, for uh, the, the children. But there's so many variables here because right. one of the things that I'm wondering if people understand is how many different types of loot boxes there are. And yeah. actually, you don't do that in your research. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as I said to you uh, last night, I used the word loot crates when I was uh, um, on BBC and they didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, they're the same sort of thing. It's just yep. we have different names or in-app purchases and yeah and hence here is the problem with cyber research I think yes yes exactly um, the the only way so it's really interesting because I get the question I get asked most frequently is by people who play a specific game and they're like aha my game has um, card packs in it so maybe they play ultimate team mm. or something and they're like I've got player packs are those loot boxes because they're not a box um, so uh, we have uh, I'm not sure if it was us. It might have been. Uh, there were two brilliant researchers who did a really nice uh, theoretical piece where they said, oh, loot boxes uh, look a heck of a lot like gambling in this way, and this way, and this way. They're really systematic and really clean about it. Called Drummond yeah. and Sauer, though I'm probably mangling their names, unfortunately. Um, uh, they did this amazing piece. Um, uh, and they said um, loot boxes are um, items that you can buy uh, with real-world money in uh, digital games, uh, but that contained randomised contents. Uh, I think that was them. Uh, you might need to double-check if I'm misquoting them. But anyway, that's how we define it, right? Because mm-hmm. they look yeah. different all the time. But I think if you can buy it, um, if it's possible to buy it with real-world money, and if it contains randomised rewards in some way, then it's a loot box, even if it looks like a pack of cards. Um, well, I think this is where FIFA had said what they said yesterday. So the, the, the lovely report that came out in the media and, and FIFA had said, no, it's definitely not because we've decided ours are about cards, aren't they? They're about players. Yeah, and about I, players. I, yeah. And, and I've been in, in versions of, uh, so I, I, I will say, and, and people do know this, that I play computer games with uh, some of my clients. And one of the things we've done is we've talked about, you know, so when you're playing FIFA, and you get your random card pack. And I've seen the kids go, oh, I've got Cristiano Ronaldo again. I don't need him. Everybody's got Cristiano Ronaldo. Awesome. No, no, I think you're wrong. I think they're like a kinder egg where you get a delightful surprise every time, uh, as, as the games industry uh, will repeat. So another uh, something that I'm really hoping, I, I, have, some, I have some sympathy with, with games industry bodies, because a lot of what they've been saying has been like, there's no evidence they're harmful. There's no evidence they're harmful. There's no evidence they're harmful. And to some extent, they've been right because um, for some reason, there haven't been any empirical research done on the effects of loot boxes on players. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure why, but, but we, it just hadn't happened, uh, possibly because of a hang-up in uh, the media effects community about violence, which <laughs> is a bugbear of mine. I'll talk about endlessly, if you let me. Uh, but nobody had done it. So to some extent, uh, the game industry is justified in saying, look, there's no evidence. You want us to cut our profits massively for something that you're yep. just kind of uh, spitballing about. Uh, but now that there is some evidence, like I'm really hoping we get engagement from industry because I have a um, optimistic view of lots of games developers and games people where I think they're actually just trying to make fun stuff and there's a lot of good people out there. And I hope now that they can see the potential for harm, they'll come and sort of engage with us and say, hey, let's yeah. work together yeah. and, and um, yeah, and, and to be honest, after I, I, and if you put yourself in the shoes of a child for, for just a moment, when you've played a game three times that week, because obviously I'm not going to label anybody here with excessive screen time, excessive <laughs> gaming or anything like that, because I don't believe any of it, um, that actually there's something that the game gets a bit boring. We plateau, mm. don't we? We plateau with stuff. We get bored. So yeah. actually, you can then take a risk. Okay, so I'm not going to call it gambling. I'm going to say take a risk. Yeah. 
on getting something that will help you play uh, a new version. These, this was bloody what we did in the in the years of like the the King Cut. I'm going to show how old I am now, right? Space Invaders was you needed your name on that board on the top, yeah. right? And and you had to think of a three letter one that would kind of fit on the the, the scoreboard and so on. Yeah, that was what you all aimed for. That was how you kind of found your space with your tribe and so on. Well. There's so many ways that children can do this now in their games, and obviously I know this applies to adults, but they can change how they look, they can change their avatars, they right. can change their skins, they can take risks in, you know, will I get this that will help me build a better village? Will this help me get to the next level? Will this show other players how good I am? You know, it, it's so complicated. And obviously yeah. the loot boxes that you're talking about coming at this level where when it comes to the term gambling, and I'm aware of this, it tends to be attributed to adults anyway. Yeah. Because gambling is is uh, um, the gambling association tend to look at adults engaging in this behaviour. It's not really seen as children gambling. We might call it risk taking, or yeah. we might call it adolescent behaviour. You know, and again, there's too many variables. Yeah, and it's complicated further by the fact that um, it's in the UK. It's literally not gambling because uh, gambling has specific technical features uh, to do with being able to get money out the other end. And um, so whatever you're calling, one of the really interesting things about uh, loot boxes is that saying whether they're gambling or not requires you to be like a legal expert. Um, yeah. Because because that's like a legal technical classification you're making of the behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and what we're saying uh, is, I get asked loads: Is it gambling? Is it gambling? Is it gambling? And um, uh, what I would say, what I have to say in those cases is, it looks a lot like gambling. If you want to know if it's gambling or not, you need to go ask a lawyer. What we do know is that it's potentially harmful. So that complicates that conversation even further because because yeah. we can't have a even though it has so many analogies with gambling, we're like, this looks so much like gambling. Uh, we can't use the word gambling without becoming imprecise. Um, so we have to yeah. use some sort of long, long linguistic workaround to talk about what we know we're talking about. Yeah. And that, that tends to put parents off from understanding and reading the research. Right. So then we rely, oh, we're going to go down, we're off down this route now, are you ready? And then we have to rely on the media to translate it. Exactly. And, and um, uh, well, you'll get a mixed bag there. So I've recently been repeatedly called Australian in the media. That's the, that's the most uh, recent thing for me. Uh, me and Paul Cairns, who's my uh, co-author on this study, uh, he was my PhD supervisor. He's sort of a great friend and mentor to me. Um, we we gave testimony to Australian governments about loot boxes where we said roughly the stuff that I've just said to you. Um, and then it got picked up by a bunch of places, something quite big. But when it got picked up, we were both Australians suddenly, which I loved. We were Australian researchers working for the government, which I loved. So, so. <laughs> yeah, that, would, that would be good if you got the pay rise to go with it. Well, you know, exactly. Yeah. No, it was, it, was, it was nice being honorary Australians for the day, but like, uh, you do question. Like, you're like, if they're getting that wrong, uh, what, what else are they getting wrong? Mm. I, I, I do find that it's been really interesting how it's, um, it is kind of being attributed to gambling for children. And I'm saying, well, actually, if you look at natural normative processes of adolescent behaviour... Yep. You are looking at a particular type of risk taking. So I talked uh, last night, I talked about this hyper-rational thinking. And adolescents go through a particular phase where, um, so I, I, I give examples when I'm teaching and I'll talk about, so, I'll, so the police might say to a child, you know, why did, why did you drive down that road at 90 miles an hour? Yep. And they go, because I didn't get caught. And, you know, they'll be having a conversation with them and the child might go, yeah, but the chances are next time I won't get caught. Because I got caught behavior. this time. Is that what you call it? Hyper rational thinking. Really interesting. And it's it's such a, because actually what they're not thinking about is the consequence of driving at ninety miles an hour and hitting a, a lamppost, a person, a dog, a cat, whatever it is. Yeah. They've kind of done this thing where they go, "Hmm, I've been caught once. The chances are it's in my favour that it won't happen again." Yeah. So that means that I can take this behaviour again and again and again. Yeah. And obviously that doesn't start happening until you're about 12. And before that, the idea of risk taking is it's just not cognitively there for young children. So when, when they're given these, let's talk about FIFA again for a second, the card packs, they will just keep pressing until yep. they get the ones that they want because yep. actually that's what they're doing. They're cognitively looking for what they want. That's really interesting. Really interesting. Mm. Um, 
And it makes me glad that I haven't made any bold statements about children because it just shows what I would be doing wrong. Um, one of the real problems actually in being a media effects scholar, which is what I consider myself, and not having a specialism in uh, what, child development psychology, is that what we're talking about? What's uh, the- well, it, yeah, it's, it's part of, it's part of um, psychotherapy, child development, um, human behaviour. It yeah. it's, all, it's all that qualitative stuff. <laughs> well, I get asked a bunch of questions about how my results on adults would transfer over to children that I just can't answer. Um, and it's clearly something that people want to know about. And I find it very difficult uh, repeatedly disappointing them. Um, because you, with the violent stuff, I always said, talk to an expert. Um, and with the loot boxes stuff, I say something similarly vague and like, oh, you might want to think about it, something like that. Um, yeah. it's, it's really interesting. But I suppose a lot of the anxiety is about children. Mm-hmm. And, we get, and, and the thing is, is we are in this cohort of life moving through at the moment very slowly. And, and there's like this, this section of us um, that I, I tend to say this a, a, a lot. I don't know whether it's the truth or not, but there's a lot of adults looking at this section of children going, oh, it's so dangerous, this environment yeah. that you're in. And I'm saying, but you don't understand this environment. How can yeah. you explain? Yeah, it's exactly. really true. We do, I think what we do need is, is more, again, more research around loot boxes, but we need more research around children, but young children. And there are very few practitioners who do that kind of research because they're just not interested. And then the academics, because of um, ethical considerations, don't usually work with the young. Right. I, I call them dinkies. So they don't tend to work with the small and dinkies because yes, exactly. you don't usually get the ethical approval. Yeah, I so, have no idea where I'd even start trying to get clearance for that. Um, the only way I'd be able to do that is to work with someone who already worked with dinkies. Um, I, I, and I'm, I'm fascinated because I, I sit, you know, each day, each week, and I'm, I'm doing this stuff with these children and I'm, I'm you know, constantly uh, banging off blogs and, and pissing people off really, because that's what I tend to do. Um, and it's, so it's about actually, this is what's happening for these children. And it's not always... Uh, a negative thing so yeah. I, I don't I don't believe in this gaming disorder because actually when the children are sat here the modus operandi of why they're doing what they're doing is for social reasons yeah. you know and it, it's for me that's not an addictive process to be socially I, I as, as I often say I am not addicted to my children my children are not addicted to each other yeah. I, I, there's not many people that are addicted to another person they might have other other issues but yeah I'm not go there but they're not addicted. And actually, that's how I ended up writing a blog. I think it was called Internet Hanging Out With Your Mates Disorder. Mm, I like that. I like that. That's what children are doing. They're yeah, hanging yeah, out yeah. with their mates. I think it's really interesting. So I think it's getting better. But I think classically, there was the worst possible disconnect in the literature between researchers saying what games were and what games actually were to the people playing them. And I think it's being healed by good researchers uh, who actually do understand games. Uh, people like Marky and Shabelsky and Ferguson. Uh, like, you know, there's, there's like a yeah. group of names where you, you're like, I'm just going to mention all these names together. Um, people like that who genuinely do understand games. Uh, and I think it's healing this rift in the literature. But I think a lot of stuff in the literature talks about games that are kind of unrecognisable to people who play games, you know, uh, they uh, people who assume that gaming, for instance, isn't a social event. Um, it's mm. so many games are social these days, um, for good or for bad. But we're just not looking at it. Um, yeah, yep. I, I send people to so my parents, if they if they are concerned, I tend to say to them, go and listen to. Um, so I don't know if you know about Jamie Madigan's uh, the game uh, Psychology of Games. So that's a, a podcast. I've heard the name. Yeah. So I, te- I say, go and listen to that and pick the subject, you know, have a look down at the, the list of whatever it is that you think you've got a concern with and go and listen to somebody that's an academic that's also a gamer. Yeah. They, t- they tend to be gamers. Um, I, I send them off to read uh, Pat Markey and Chris Ferguson's book. Ah, that's a good book. Yeah. That's a good book. Off, send them off to read Tony Bean's book, which I've started, you know, emblazoning around every therapist right. that I go and teach. And then I, I, I say to them, and if you're really that interested in what games are, do you tell them to play a game? <laughs> well, yeah, but also go and have a look at the Red Bull channel 
because not only do you have the snowboarders over here, you have an absolute gaming channel. They've got a whole gaming channel dedicated on the Red Bull channel to gamers and what gamers do. Nice. And what, what you see is lots and lots of people sitting down, a bit like they do at the LAN parties, and they all sit together, but they're all communicating. They're all playing together. Yeah. And I said to parents, so tell me, are they really addicted or are they hanging out with their mates and having fun and having a party? Because that's what we used to do, but we might have done it with rounders or we might have gone out and played rugby or, I don't know, whatever it was that anybody did. And, and I think what is happening is we're using the, the, the media-driven hype to go how scary this is because actually yep. you don't understand it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and I'm fascinated by this. I don't know why people do it. I don't know why people are so excited about doing it. <laughs> um, uh, surely they must live in terror. Um, I know I was terrified when I started doing this loot boxes research and I didn't understand loot boxes that well. Let's go talk to a bunch of people and watch a bunch of videos uh, and I, I still get cold sweats out. I've got something wrong about it. Surely they must live in absolute terror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably. I'm just thinking here then, David, with the amount of time you must have spent near a screen, you must have ended up with, you know, uh, uh, an excessive screen time issue. Well, exactly. I certainly do. <laughs> I'm a very unwell person. Uh, yeah, it's it's really weird. Um, really, really weird. Um, I can't understand how things got so bad. Um I think because I'm relatively early career as an academic, so I wasn't there when all this development was happening. I, uh, this is, I, I don't understand how we got to the place we are with media effect uh, and how it's reported. And we seem to be turning it around, but it seems so slow. And all the yeah. old studies that are just, that are just terrible. They're just terrible. Um, and all the questions we just haven't answered. Um, gender stereotypes in games. Like, I'm fascinated by that idea. Nobody's really answered it. There's so little research done on it. And the research yeah. that has been done is often quite strange or or broken. But these are these are big questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's really funny. You've just triggered... I said this would happen. You've just triggered a memory. So I was doing my uh, undergrad, and one of, the, one of the modules I took was, I think it was called People and Technology. You know, that's... Yeah. It was slightly old. Nice sounding module. Nice sounding module. <laughs> one of the... In fact, it was really interesting, actually, talking about CGI, because what they were looking at was how, how they were manipulating faces to talk alongside um, the, the, the audio voice and how they were syncing everything up and how it looked out of sync. Yeah. And I just think about since that time to now, the CGI is almost, I find it sometimes really difficult to tell whether something oh, is CGI yeah. or not. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. I was watching the new Ant-Man film, and like my wife was like, I was like, look what they've done with Michael. Duck. Have you seen the new Ant-Man film? It's it's not a particularly great film. It's, it's in fact I would call a bad film. Um, but uh, they... no, it's one I've avoided. Uh, I tend to do, I do my Marvel and DC, uh, but actually uh, there are some that I kind of be uh, yeah, yeah. doing that. Don't, don't watch it for the purpose of like it's it's not an enjoyable two hours. <laughs> like <laughs> like you won't get them back. But they do this thing like Marvel has started doing this weird like flashback CGI where they create a 3D model of an actor as they would have appeared many years ago and have them trot around in the, in the um, films. So they can do like period bits. So they can be like, oh, this is what Michael Douglas would have looked like in his flashback in the 80s. Uh, and they had this CGI Michael Douglas. And my wife was saying, oh, it's obvious he's CGI. And I was like, really? I just think that looks like Michael Douglas. Like, I literally cannot tell that that is not just Michael Douglas now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. It's that close. Uh, we, uh, we are we are a nap snacker away from from it being uh, imperceptible, aren't we? In, in right, yeah. Which <laughs> yeah. is a terrifying barrier for the world to cross. Like that's that's gonna be great, isn't it? Um. Well, uh, I don't know. You see, because this is this is what happens so many times. I go, oh, look at that. So when when Gears of War four first came out, right? I was like, yeah. oh my god, look at that. And then within seconds, this this researcher kind of practitioner therapist thing goes. Oh God, that's going to have an impact on. Oh. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. have this high and low almost in a second every time something comes out. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I think we, it'll be rubbish if you're an actor. That's one thing we could be sure of. Um, <laughs> like, like yeah. imagine you, you're an actor, and like, I wonder if there are laws around this again, not legalized. But, but what if you're an actor? Yeah, what if you're now? What if you're Michael Douglas? And they now have a CG model of you. Can they just put it in whatever films they like? Like, um, 
Well, I think if they can do, well, I mean, they can manipulate, this is one of the podcasts I did, if they can manipulate um, data and language and faces and you can manipulate what people have said, you could, you could almost be having speeches made by actors and, and probably politicians that never existed in the first place. Yeah, that's a weird world. That's a yeah. really weird world. Uh, I saw a, again, now I'm rather than talking about my own cutting edge research, I'm just recycling things I saw on like BuzzFeed. I saw a really cool thing where it's like, this station has created a virtual anchor. It's either him or him. Which one is it? And I was like, well, it's obviously him. And I got the wrong one. That's, that's like... I oh, know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that, that just, yeah, epic fail as a human couldn't... Yeah, I know, right? Being. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we, um, so what... Actually, I'm going to go back a couple of steps. Yeah, please do. Sorry, I've, I've taken this really, really off topic. Um, that's that's totally fine so what do you find when you're teaching and, and lecturing around uh, computer science with students what what do you think's happening in the world now today where are we it, heading oh um <laughs> don't know I, we're heading into a world where everyone is obsessed with big data data science artificial intelligence uh, but they have no idea why they're obsessed with it or what problems it will fix. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to be that every week I have someone talking in glowing terms about big data and how it will solve all of our problems or asking if we're going to take our data science and do some sort of, uh, uh, our data sets, because I've got all these nice data sets and do some sort of natty machine learning over them. Uh, but nobody seems to really know why they want to do that stuff. Um, so I suppose what I see is a lot of buzzwords, actually. Um, it's probably not what you were going for there. But <laughs> no, 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 um, I, no, buzzword bingo is, is a game that I think we should invent because I think that's how possibly the media and, and so on pick their topics each week. It's like, okay, yeah. that, this, this happens definitely in um, psychotherapy. So we've gone from um, people being... Uh, trauma informed to now aces informed to now it's just so interesting how things are uh, are coming through and this this aces research i i do look and i go but this has been around for 30 years why are we now suddenly making it the big thing i don't know what aces research is what's Uh, aces research so it's the adverse childhood experiences study that was done Ooh. in America well over 30 years ago. And it's, it's quite interesting because, again, it's a piece of research done where they classified 10 ACEs that people could be kind of scored on. But it misses really important things out as well. And, and, and suddenly that's how we now look at trauma. And I, I, get, I get children who turn up and they'll say, oh, they've got an ACE score of four. And I go, so what? What does that mean for this child? Awesome. You know, it's it's, it's really it's, exciting to hear that there are other inscrutable buzzwords in other fields um, as well. Yeah, in in you know, it's psychotherapy. So because I do what I do, and I cross a few paradigms, if you like. So not only do I do psychotherapy, I'm into cyber psychology, I suppose, and and I look and I see. Okay, so this week this week we're talking about the iPhone and what's attributable to that, and then there's the big data and that yeah, I love I love buzzword bingo. I think oh, brilliant. Just... Well, if you if you want a good buzzword for computer science, um, you can't get better at the moment. The neural networks and deep learning. Have you come across <laughs> either of those two? Um, uh-huh. So. Yes. Uh, uh, well, you see, uh, people say neural nets to me, and I'm like, oh, all right, okay. So we're going down, we're going down this um, neuroplastic route. But will computers actually learn that way? In fact, there's a book called Superintelligent. Have you read it? It's very no. good. Is that what, that's, what's it? That's got, that's got a lot of uh, neural network language lingo in it as well. Oh, that's great. I, I like the neural networks thing. I think it's a really fun and interesting idea. It's weird how it's. So if you went to a computer science conference and you wanted everyone to like you, um, you would be able, you just say, yeah, I do deep learning. Um, that's, that's what I'm mostly into, just massive data sets and deep learning. And everyone would love you because it seems to be what everyone wants to hear at the moment. Um, because I guess um, deep learning's um, proven really effective at solving a bunch of problems. Uh, and now everyone is suddenly jumping on the idea, or well, maybe not so suddenly, everyone is consistently jumping on the idea that will solve all their problems. Uh, uh, mm, I'm just I'm just thinking on how we uh, how we change our life. It sounds so vague and nebulous, doesn't it? Yeah, deep yeah. learning, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Sometimes I go, and what does that mean? You know. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, 
so here's a computer science joke for you, which you won't get unless you're literally a computer scientist, but for the computer scientists amongst your audience. Uh, I was talking to someone about deep learning a while ago, uh, and I didn't really know what it was, but I wanted to sound uh, knowledgeable. So they were like, yeah, I'm, I'm into deep learning. And I said, oh yeah, you're doing deep learning. Uh, what's your state representation like? Um, that's for the computer scientists out there. That's the, that's the end of the anecdote. It's an anecdote right. that proves I'm, I'm very stupid. Um, uh-huh. So I'm not a computer science geek. However, yeah. that made me think of um, uh, spreading activation in, in the brain. Yeah. And how, how you actually end up with a, um, a certain, certain knowledge, if you like, at a, a set point, and it's based on that, whether the neurons fire or not. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's the idea behind deep learning is that you can um, train, um, you can represent a... Again, this is dangerous ground for me because I'm literally not an expert in this. I'm like an all-purpose computer scientist. Uh, but it's um, a way of representing how it's a... So, you got a neural <laughs> network, right? Uh, which is yep. a way of taking some inputs and processing them to create some outputs. Yep. So, uh, how I would describe a neural network... Uh, I would say it's a, a, a connectionist system uh, inspired by biological neural networks that constitute animal brains. It's yep. not an algorithm, but rather a framework for machine learning algorithms to work together and process complex data inputs. Uh, and they learn to perform tasks by considering examples generally without being programmed with any task-specific rules. Mm -hmm. There you go. That is... Uh, no. Yeah. So I yeah. would say um, that, that that was probably written by uh, somebody like, um, so again, I'm now having a brain fart, and this is somebody, that uh, Sam Harris, who no, I absolutely it, adore listening to. It was it was written by Mr. Wikipedia, uh, yep. or possibly Ms. Wikipedia, since that was a deep... Oh, not Dr. Go I was going to say, if it's not Dr. Google, it's Miss Wikipedia. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Google, Miss Wikipedia, yeah. Whereas it should have actually been uh, Miss Simple Wikipedia, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> how yeah. I learned about ideas in things like physics and chemistry. Have you seen Simple English Wikipedia? Oh, it's no. amazing. It no. will knock you no. out. So, so you know when you go to a Wikipedia page and it says something like, an artificial neural network is a connectionist system inspired by yep. biological neural... And you're like, oh, geez, I don't have the three degrees I require to understand this. Um, if you look for Simple English Wikipedia, uh, it breaks it down into the tiny words that I can understand, uh, which is uh, really nice. Uh, for instance, a neural network is a sort of computer software inspired by biological neurons. Biological brains are capable of solving difficult problems, but each neuron is only responsible for solving a very small part of the problem. Similarly, mm -hmm. a neural network is made up of cells that work together to produce a desired result, although each individual cell is only responsible for solving a small part of the problem. This mm -hmm. is one method for creating artificially intelligent programs. Um, it's a really nice website because it speaks English in a simple way. It's yeah. how I learned about uh, black holes uh, and things. Yeah, I put, um, so I was teaching last week and I put my academic definition of cyber trauma up and I watched everybody read it and I went, I said, that's academic arsery at its best, isn't it? Yeah, that's great, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, now I'm going to click to the next slide, which makes, makes it very simple. I think it's a, way of, it's a way of creating an old boys club, though. It's like, uh, can you do the secret handshake? Um, because if you can't do the secret handshake, then you can't come into the club. Uh, yeah, and, and what what I found with my, and, and this is one of the things though, is once you start talking as a researcher, you have this, it's like this difficulty in in describing things without using academic language. Yeah. And it, it becomes this, and I've noticed that academics tend to sit and they get stuck and they try to look for the simple way to explain things. Yeah. And I happen to be at the other end of the spectrum going, oh, I can explain it really simply. And then I struggle to go back to put it into academic terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But um, so Paul Cairns, who was my PhD supervisor, uh, he had this, he always, like when I started out writing my PhD thesis, it was super flowery because I wanted to be a fancy, I wanted to look fancy. I wanted people to think I was smart. So I made mm -hmm. the words really hard and I used lots and lots of long words. You know, whenever there were three simple words I could use, I'd use a long word, one single long word instead. Uh, and Paul said to me, and I'll never forget it, he was like, your ideas are hard enough without dressing them up in hard language. Make the language simple because the ideas are hard. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yep, 
Yeah, and, and that's that's what I've had to, well, that's why I've ended up doing what I've done with, um, so I was supposed to be writing a second book and I've now written uh, two and a half out of a series of four because it's just too big, a, too big a subject to actually say this is what cyber trauma is and this is why it exists. Yeah. So it's ended up going into different different areas and I've got four books rather than one. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to make it very, very simple. Um, so I managed to do that with my very first book and I put things into simple terms. But now it looks like I've done a complete 180 on some of my opinions about addiction, screen time and things yeah. like that. Whereas actually I've gone, uh, well, I haven't. I just have more evidence now as to why this seems to be yeah. um, a better way of writing about it. And I think probably because that's what I have to do as a therapist I have to sit with five and six-year-olds and explain how their brain works. And I can't do that with neuroscientific terms. I've got to sit and say to them, so you have this bit that's like a gecko and you have this bit that's like a puppy and you have this bit that's like an owl. And it make it make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I also think that if you can't say it in simple terms, given enough time, you might not understand it. Um, as we, yeah. like... Like you should, so if you think about it, all those complex words that we use as scientists, they're like a shorthand for communicating with our mates who also use the shorthand. So we can say things to each other really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. Use like, like a few big words that package up a whole bundle of research into one tiny little thing. And then you can say, I think it's like that. If you can't unpack all those terms, it's because you don't understand them. It's because it's you've been using code. Um, I think you've just described Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's essentially what I'm watching, yeah? You get this 180 characters now, or, and people will just use short shorthand at each other, and, yeah. and sometimes I sit there going, I have no idea what you're talking about. And yeah, then yeah. you have to go away and, and kind of look it up sometimes, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, particularly, particularly in this, this area as well, because uh, I, I do wonder, actually, if there is a little bit of kind of this cyber competition going on with people saying that their research is better and that they've done this particular type of research, and... We've we've actually done this and so on and so forth. It's probably it's probably why I like um, one line I like from Big Bang Theory is when uh, Amy turns around to Sheldon and says and something or other about confounding variables and she said you don't even know what they are because you're not a social uh, <laughs> you know what I mean you're not a practitioner or whatever. Yeah. Um, was, people yeah. talk people talk an awful lot uh, using, but it becomes really embarrassing if you. So I remember once I was in a big staff meeting um, and I started mouthing off about, you know, thinking fast and slow. Yeah, Daniel Kahneman. Exactly. And I was like, so you have this type one, which is this like sort of fast system or whatever. You've got this type two, which is this slow system. And I got them the wrong way around. And I, I, because I hadn't read thinking fast and slow, I was just parroting it because uh, that's what everyone did. And and in fact, this day, I still do not know which one is the fast one and which one is the slow one. Um, Ooh, ooh. Right? I've done this before, so. Awesome. Yeah, so type, one, type one is the error that you make attributed to it. So that would be the fast system. I'm Ooh. sure it is. We'll, awesome. go, we'll go with type one. Awesome. But That's again, great. one of those right. things, it's in the reference at the back and I'd have to turn around and check the book. <laughs> I, you see, this is, what, this is why sometimes I go off and, and I say to people, oh, so-and-so said this, uh, but I'm going to tell you to go and read his book. Yeah. So I just throw names at people because I'm like, I know he said it or she said it, but, you know, go and read it. Yeah. Because yeah. actually that's, that is something that's um, missing from a lot of the games research at the moment, isn't it? Is, is kind of, um, so you talked about earlier before we were recording about priming. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about all the kind of psychological te- techniques that we do in psychology research are now being kind of brought into the gaming. And so I'm seeing that there's, you know, attribution bias. Yeah. That we're looking at whether whether yeah, user experiences looks at some of this. It's, right. it's really interesting how we are trying to do the psychology of games, but actually the thing that hasn't been explored as far as I can see is why children have so much fun playing games. Yeah, it's interesting. Um I don't know why. I just I'm just so confused about why the field is in the direction it's heading. There's so much good stuff to do. And instead, we seem to be hanging around repeatedly showing that if you do some things, it sometimes gives you one result on a word fragment completion task. 
Uh, like thousands of papers show that if you show one thing, one game rather than another game, it has some effect on the word fragment completion task. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how we got to where we are, um, and I don't know what we could do to turn it around. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting in terms of uh, my my profession isn't up on this topic. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing the podcast. Yeah, because. I, I don't have time, plus not enough organisations are willing to kind of bring me in and pay me for two days' worth of training because that's what it would take to say, okay, so this is how children use social media, this is what they're doing on social media, these are the effects that can happen, this yeah. is what you do in the therapy room. People are like, yeah, but just come and talk about cyberbullying, Kath. And I say, that still takes over a day yeah. because it's such a complex issue, you know, and I think the gaming industry is is kind of producing games faster than the researchers can research right that's one of the the thing i mean we're into vr ar and you know the, the kind of haptic feedback level we're going into yep. the, and i keep i think i can't remember who i said this to the other week i cannot wait to wear kind of like a haptic suit and go and play doom with a vr headset on yeah. cinema doing da, 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 da. yeah you're not that far off it either that's the weird thing um well the whole the and i I'm, trying to explain this to therapists the other week. I said, how many of you know what a holodeck is? And they all looked at me and I said, look, I'm, I'm a Star Wars fan, not Star Trek. I said, but you yeah. know, holodeck, we'll go one person. Oof. And I was like, oh, I was just about to tell you that we're about two to five years away from, away the, from holodeck. the holodeck. But now I have to go back to the beginning and say what a holodeck is. Now I have to describe what a holodeck is and it's going to be it's really embarrassing. difficult. You should, you should do it by recounting the entirety of like encounter at Farpoint. <laughs> be like... <laughs> <laughs> so, so we opened with uh, the very young and uh, still attractive William Riker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, th this is the thing. Is is? I mean, do do you listen to anything about uh, around Peter Diamandis? Or, Who's Peter um, Diamandis? Oh, Peter Diamandis is. Um, he is the person who does the X Prize every year. So this is where they give away ten million pounds to designers oh, of wow. technology and so on. He helped set up the Singularity University with Ray Kurzweil, who, who wrote the Singularity. Yeah. And he's, he, this is where I get a lot of my information from. He's like at the forefront of technology and about how we can create abundance in the world with technology in terms of how we can make water supplies much more prevalent, how we can, uh, you know, any technology in terms of feeding people, uh, producing clothes where um, it's not using slave labor, everything and it was through one of his podcasts that he talked about you know the holodeck is not that far away yeah and I was like, this is this is where we're at at the minute kind of technology is it's... such a force for good yeah i'm really excited to see what vr does i cannot wait there's a bunch of research to be done on vr that hasn't been done as well um on like it's so so the thing that shocks me about vr is how easy it is to develop things for it so i thought it'd be really um I did uh, a very a brief postdoc uh, with a uh, researcher called Cade McCall, uh, who is a VR social psychologist. He's done all sorts of wicked VR projects, like putting people into VR and changing their environments or putting you into VR with your romantic partner and seeing what happens if they do something uh, that's not very supportive with you in VR and stuff, because you can use mm -hmm. VR to mock up like... Uh, loads of situations you wouldn't see in the real world. So you can have people do these sort of like canyon walking tasks. He showed me one of his old papers the other day. I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Uh, so I did a post-up with him and I got really into VR and developing for VR. I was shocked how easy it is. It's so, so easy to build things in VR now. It's such an amazing tool for researchers to use. But I think a lot of researchers don't realise just how easy it would be, uh, particularly social science researchers, to do yeah. stuff in VR now. It's really easy. Really, I, I, really yeah. easy. I'm so, I'm so excited by it. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting, like I talked to you earlier about the kind of biology, um, I, get, I get motion sickness with one kind of game and my son gets it with another. And it was so funny that um, I think, I can't remember what game I was on, Luge, I think it was where you're coming down the hill. Yeah. And you're on this little board and it goes up over a little jump and my stomach went, eh? but because it didn't come back down, I felt ill. I yeah. felt really ill. And I was like, no, can't play that. And it's so Yeah, funny. no, no, no. I, I, so Kate and I were trying to develop a VR. We were developing a, a virtual city with cars in it because we were going to be like, oh, these new types of autonomous vehicles will be coming into the world soon. Let's see how people respond to them in virtual reality rather than on the streets where it's mm -hmm. a bit safer, having a big AV barreling into you. 
Um, and uh, part of that, we were looking at driving behaviors and it was super difficult to get it so people could drive around the world in virtual reality uh, with like the stopping and the starting and all sorts of stuff without uh, feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know how they're going to fix it actually, unless you literally only have experiences where you're walking around because it's not like we're all going to buy chairs with hydraulic rams on them so it could physically simulate the G-forces we'd be exposed to. Mm. It might be that VR experiences when they become commercialized. People talk a lot about uh, VR games, what they're going to look like. Maybe the successful VR games are the ones that will work within the constraints of VR space. You know, this is a game that is yeah. set inside a small room about as big as your living room, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I, do, I do like quite, quite a few of the space games because I, right. I don't get any kind of motion sickness on them. I can, you know, but uh, there is also something about I've never been in space to fly a ship, so I can't exactly pretend that I know what it feels like. Yeah. But I definitely know what going on. And that's, that's what I was doing is going, ah, my body knows this one, doesn't like this one. Yeah, this yeah, one, yeah. Quite happy with that. Yeah. And it, yet, it, it... actually, my son got the motion sickness doing one of the, I think it was the um, Call of Duty one. Yeah. So... That one, that one was, he was doing Call of Duty, there's, whatever it's called. <laughs> you... brain, brain fart this end. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, the one where you're in space, and, uh, and, and he was doing that, and he just went, nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nope. yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm running out of battery here. Give me one sec. Oh. Okay. I'm getting beeps in my ear. Hold on. Well, with you, with you actually taking the time to do that, I've noticed we have been talking for 50 minutes. So like I said, okay. it was nowhere going to be... No. 20, 30 minutes when, because I think we had about half an hour, half no, an hour, 40 was. minutes before we started. No, it never was going to be. Um, but it is yeah. good chatting. I, what what else do you want to ask me? What have I actually said about loot boxes so far? Um, what did is you that, say? Well, no, this is going to test me. This is going to test me as a person listening. Yeah. Um, well, you did an overview of your research. What you did do that was really important, and I, I will I will come back to that, is you talked about that it's a correlation. And actually, yes. one thing doesn't cause the other, and we need. It, and I think, yeah, the cause and correlation debate is one that's misunderstood by the layperson in general, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's really interesting. So there are two ways that people go. One is either um, you take the correlation as causal. So you're like, oh, that's linked to that, therefore that causes that. And, and that's literally the level you get it at. Uh, but at the other end, which I find equally pernicious, and I didn't expect to, um, I didn't expect this at all, but um, I talked to lots of people about my research, is it's a correlation. I've heard about this um, correlation doesn't even equal causation, and therefore you're rubbish, and your research is rubbish, and it's worthless. And I find this really interesting. Uh, when you talk to lots of people, um, they really have this all or nothing view of a study, uh, which I think is really interesting because um, they think that science is built from perfect studies and only perfect studies. Uh, and yeah. anything that is not perfect should not enter uh, science, should not be counted as science and should not enter the scientific record. Um, and lots of people say it's a correlational study and therefore it's of no value, which I, I deeply disagree with. I think we can... I believe in like a, a like a real multiplicity of, of research methods. I think we can learn stuff from loads of stuff if we discuss it honestly. If we're open and honest about what we're finding and what it can say and what it can't say, you can learn from loads of different kinds of research, not just from tightly controlled lab-based experiments. Like they, yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the no, uh, and and the the non-publishing of the null hypothesis. You know, that's, yeah. that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Well, actually, we investigated it. We didn't find anything. Oh, well, you can't publish it. In there. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, which is why I'm so really into uh, pre-registration and preprints. Bloody love them. Cannot get enough of the... So uh, I did my first pre-registration a month or two ago, uh, and I loved it. I hated it at the same time, but I loved it. So when you pre-reg a study, you say, I'm going to run this test and this test and this test. And you know what I'm going to find? I'm going to find this and this and this. I'm making all my predictions very clear and very public. Mm -hmm. And I'm showing them to everyone. And it's in this um, immutable public online record of what I said I'm going to do in my study, exactly how I'm going to do it, exactly what I think I'm going to find. Uh, and then I run it. Um, and I love that because it gets rid of that non-publishing of null effects. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, when you combine it with pre-printing, where you say, I've not even published this in a journal yet, I've just got the results, I'm going to shove them up online, 
uh, let everyone have access to it. When you put those two things together, it really fixes problems with the scientific method. And if you, if you double it up with uh, something I'm even more excited by, is have you come across registered reports yet? No. They are amazing. So I haven't done one yet, but I'd really love to do one. The idea is you write to a journal, uh, and loads of journals have started accepting them very, very recently. And you said, look, here is the design for my experiment or my piece of research. If I did that, regardless of what the results are, if I did everything the way I've told you that I'm going to do it, would you mm-hmm. publish that? And, and they say, in principle, if they publish it based on that, and that is where your first stage of peer review occurs right then before you've even done it. Isn't that oh, wicked? Yeah. Like, oh. You know those fizz buzzies I was talking about? I am now yeah. going, oh, this is so exciting. My goodness. Actually, that will now mean that you can start looking around and stop replicating everybody else's research as yep. well because you would be seeing... Um, exactly. And if there's nothing, you'll see that there's nothing. And you know what? If someone is like, I'm going to run this study and it's going to have two participants and it's going to be um, a quantitative study using this sketchy measure, will you publish that? They'd be able to say, no, we wouldn't. You need to fix these things about your method before you run that study which is brilliant it's it's and it's it's nice for the authors because it reduces risk say i'm about to run a really uh, stupid study and i'm about to lose about six months of my life doing something really heavyweight but i've just missed one thing uh when i go through that prior round of peer review uh they'll catch it uh, that's the thing that I panicked about when, when I kind of was doing some of my, and I was like, yeah, but people are going to pick up on the methodology and people are going to pick up because that's basically what we do as academics. We attack yep. each other's methodology. There was something about, I kind of stepped out of that and went, right. Okay. How can I do it? And I, I got into this be perfect battle with myself. Yeah. You know, my supervisor had to say, Kath, research is meant to have flaws. Yeah, because yeah, I know. How do you learn? I really rate that. So I've got a canny, I've got a, a phrase I use for this because I apply it to myself or I applied it to myself and I also apply it to uh, students quite often as well, which I call rigor mortis, where you add so much oh. rigor to your, yeah, that your research dies. <laughs> uh, like, oh. uh, yeah, uh, but I think it's really common actually. I think it's really, really common amongst researchers that we try and do things so perfectly that we actually do nothing. Uh, we're so yeah. terrified of the imperfect that we do nothing. Whereas actually what's much more helpful is for us to do a first study with flaws, be very open and honest about those flaws, and then do a second study that fixes those flaws. And you know what, by doing the first study, you work out what the flaws are. Yeah. Uh, and if the first study isn't strong enough to stand on its own, that's brilliant. You're just writing a, a multi-experimental, multi-study journal article there because you get to do the second one. That fixes the things of the first one. Yeah. It's, I'm just thinking funding. And uh, there's so many positives to it, isn't there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, on that right. note, I'm going to I'm going to go off and consider. Well, no, not this. Not tonight. Not, yeah. not today. <laughs> it's not going to happen now. Yeah. But, I'm going to sit down and think about kind of my, you know, my research in the PhD and that and where I'm going at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, David. Yeah, it's been lovely. Feeling, funny feeling I'm going to be doing uh, season two with a lot of people that I invite back from season one as awesome. well. So. Awesome. That's uh, really nice. It's been really, really lovely talking to you. I've had a real blast. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Please invite me back if you ever want to. It's been really fun talking to you. This podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.